Attention, look at this. In, Christian, uh, in Britain today, Western world today, we're not being executed for our faith. And we're not being tortured for our faith. So we cannot draw a parallel between the two things. We cannot draw a parallel between Acts chapter 4 and the situation that you or I are in in Britain today. They're just too different. That's your hypothetical objection, okay? But what I want us to think about just now is just how wrong that is, first of all. But also, indeed, how immensely similar the situations are. How immensely similar the situation in Acts chapter 4 is with the way things are in the Western world and the way things are in Britain today. Because you see, if we think about it, Acts chapter 4, yeah, undoubtedly there is opposition to Christianity in Acts chapter 4. But there isn't really what, there isn't as yet what we would call sort of widespread, outright persecution of Christians. Is there an Acts chapter 4? I mean, that's going to come. You know, as we go into Acts, we're really going to see that sort of persecution ramped up a bit. But just now in Acts chapter 4, you know, lots of doors are not being kicked down and hundreds of believers are not being uh, dragged out, are they? I mean, really what we've got in Acts chapter 4, if we think about it, are the beginnings, or, if you like, the first shoots of opposition. I mean, there's no question, as we've just read, the Sanhedrin are opposed to Christianity. But they're just not really quite sure what to do about that yet, are they? They don't know how to respond. Now, isn't that the same as our situation today? Okay, because we are not, in this country at the moment, facing widespread, outright persecution. But I'll tell you this, if our society know anything, if our leaders know anything, if our government knows anything, it knows that it is opposed to biblical Christianity. But it isn't, perhaps, quite sure what to do about that yet. So I hope you see it. Acts chapter 4... It's incredibly relevant to us. And what we'll do today is is reasonably similar to the approach that we took last week. And we'll think today about four points, four aspects, four points here about how we respond to any opposition that we face as Christians. Okay, so four points about responding to Christian opposition. I'll tell you what we'll do um, I'll give you those points just now, just to make it a wee bit easier to follow me, uh, or to follow the sermon, okay? So we'll think firstly about the church's people, and we'll think about the church's predicament, then we'll think about the church's petition, and then lastly, if we have time, we will think about the church's empowerment. So the church's people, the church's predicament, the church's petition, and then the church's empowerment. So let's think about the first of those, the church's people. Okay, now, if you weren't here last week, what did you miss? Well, last week we saw these two men, Peter and John, and they're opposed for preaching Jesus Christ. So what happens to them? They're opposed. Well, they were arrested, weren't they? 
Then they're thrown in jail. And then they're sort of dragged before and questioned by the religious establishment, the Sanhedrin. Now, here's the thing. Here's the question. What's the first thing that we are told in this section? In verse 23. What's the first thing? So they've been arrested, they've been imprisoned. We're told that on the release, what did Peter and John do? On the release, they go back to the church, don't they? And they report to their, to the people they know, to their congregation, they report to them everything that's happened. They go back to the church. Now, we could read that and think that that's a kind of just a throwaway comment. They're released from the Sanhedrin, they go back to the church, throw away comment, we can see that as being entirely insignificant. But get this, I suggest that it's not insignificant. I suggest that that's really crucial. That's really quite helpful if we think that they went back to the church. Because do you see how it is that the author actually describes the church? He doesn't say that Peter and John go back to the church, does he? What does he say? Verse 23, what does Luke say? He says they go back to their own people. That's really interesting, isn't it? They go back to their own people. What does that mean? Does that mean that they're released by the Sanhedrin and they go back to a group of Jews? Is that what it is? Does it mean that they just go back to their family, to their parents, to their kids? Is that what is that the sort of focus of it? No. We know what it means. We know it means that they go back to the church. We know that it means that so closely, so intimately, did the disciples associate themselves with their fellow believers that them going back to the church can be described as them going back to their very own people. Their own people. Now immediately, here's the thing. Immediately this raises a very, very interesting question for us about how we see our identity. See the question really is how do you view yourself if you're a Scot in here who are your people is it just Scottish people is that how it works what about the Americans or the Peruvians or the Brazilians or the South Koreans or the Chinese are your own people just those who come from the same country as you. Is that how it works? When you this morning think about your identity, is it just nationalistic pride that sort of comes to the fore, is it? Is it? You see, how we view our, get this, how we view our identity is a great indicator of our spiritual well-being. How we view our own identity is a great indicator, a wonderful, helpful indicator of our spiritual health. And what we see in Acts chapter 4 is that these guys here, these New Testament Christians, they did not view themselves primarily along uh, ethnic lines or uh, along sort of nationalistic lines. No. They could see that valuable as those things are, nationality, family, as valuable as they are, guess what? Those things are temporary. Those things are preparatory. Nationality, family, these things are preparing us as Christians to be with our true nation and our true family in glory. 
Peter and John could see that. They went back to those who shared an identity with them in Christ, their own people. Okay, but more than that, think about this. More than that, that Peter and John went back to their own people, their own people, it shows us that the correct place to deal with opposition to the church is, of course, within the church. Say it again. That they go back to their own people shows us that the correct place to deal with opposition to the church is, of course, within the church. Because do you see what they do? Do you see how they act? Okay, they're released by the Sanhedrin. And what we told, we're told that they sort of run back, they sort of speed back, they boost back to their own people. Now, why do they do that? Why would they go back to the church? Well, they do it. They go back because they want the church to be informed about opposition, obviously. They want the church to be prepared for opposition if this opposition spreads. But most of all, do you see why they go back? We see it in the reaction of the church to Peter and John coming into uh, the community. Do you see what they do? The first thing the church does in verse 24. When the church hear about this opposition, what do they do? It says they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Peter and John come back to the church so that they can join with their own people in prayer to God. We see that not only is the church the right place to deal with opposition, but we see that prayer is the correct response to opposition. Prayer is the correct response to opposition. And if there's a challenge for us this morning, as a congregation, surely it's that, isn't it? See, really we have to ask ourselves as a church, do we do this? Do we follow the example that the church in Acts chapter 4 is is setting for us? I mean, they hear about Christian opposition. What do they do? They pray. When we hear about Christian opposition, really honestly do we pray? Not sure. You know, when we hear about that situation just now in North Korea with these 33 Christians who are facing execution for their faith, and we hear about the problems that Christians face in, in Syria just now, and in Iran just now, what are we thinking about that situation? Really, how analyze it, think about it. How, how do we approach it? Do we see those situations as the suffering and the torture of a far-off foreign alien people group? Is that how you think about it? Or do you see it for what it is? That's the suffering, that's the, that's the torture, and that's the murdering of our people. That's the suffering of our family. Of our nation, and do we get down on our knees, and do we pray about those people? And then, what about if it is us that's facing opposition? What about if it's us that faces opposition in the workplace, or at university, or amongst our friends for a faith? How do we handle it? Do we just try and cope with that by ourselves? Do we just try and deal with it as, as 
best as possible and try and get through it? Or do we take that opposition here? Do we take it to this congregation? Do we take it to our spiritual family? Do we talk about it with our congregation so that we can all gather together, we can all bow, and we can all pray about that to God? What we learn in Acts chapter 4, please hear this, is that when the church is opposed, what we do is we pray. And who do we pray with? We pray with our own people. We pray and pray with our own people. So the church's people. Secondly, let's think about the church's predicament. The church's predicament. Here we should really think about the the content of the prayer that this church prays. What they pray. The content of prayer. Now, I ask that you use your imagination at this point. Let's try and put ourselves in the shoes of the church in Acts chapter 4, will we? Okay. So here's the hypothetical situation. Imagine this, okay? First thing this morning, before the service began, imagine the doors swing open at the back of the church and two of our guys, let's say Bob and Peter, they come in and they tell us, this is before the service this morning, hypothetically, they tell us that they were arrested last night and that they, are, they were arrested because two people in there, a couple of people in their neighbourhood had told the authorities that Bob and Peter were Christians. And the authorities had, had started clamping down on this. The, the authorities had arrested them, had chucked them in jail last night, and this morning they've been released and they've come here. Those doors have come in, and that's what Peter and Bob have told us this morning. Now, the question is, how... How are we going to react to that? I mean, what, what's going to happen if we hear that this morning? Like that's, surely that's going to start saying shockwaves through this congregation, isn't it? We're going to be thinking, if that's happened to Bob and Peter, that, we could be next. You know, we could be persecuted. We could be arrested. That's what we'd think, right? We'd be freaking out. We'd be panicking. Now, compare that with how the church in Acts chapter 4 Response. Think about the way that they pray. Now, instead of panicking, as we would do, what the church does in Acts chapter 4, it shows the most amazing spiritual discernment, is what it does. Because it's at the real sharp end of opposition and persecution, okay? And it's almost like they can take a step back out of it. You know, it's like that even, even in the face of opposition, that they take a step out in the way that they pray, and it's like they can see the, the context of opposition. It's like they can see the background for it. It's like the church can see the reason why it happens. Do you see, look, look, at, look at what they say, look at what they pray. Right? They're opposed and they're threatened. What do they pray? First thing they do, first thing they say, the first word of the prayer. Sovereign Lord. You see, they're opposed, but they can see and cling to the fact that God is in complete control of that opposition. Sovereign Lord. Then, what do they do? Then they show a sort of an understanding of opposition in light of Old Testament prophecy. And this is an interesting one. Look what they quote. We just sang it. 
a moment ago. Look, they quote Psalm 2 and it's promised that, that God's anointed is going to face opposition. That this is going to happen. It's the Old Testament prophecy. God's anointed will be persecuted. Then they show that they understand that that prophecy in Acts chapter 2 is being fulfilled. Acts 2 says, the rulers of the earth have united or gathered against God's anointed. And the church goes on to pray and show that they understand that this uniting and gathering together of the rulers of the earth against God's anointed, that has been fulfilled in Herod and Pontius Pilate coming together in showing their opposition and persecution of Jesus Christ. Now, okay, that's fine. That's what they pray. Do you see the point? This is a church that in the face of opposition is thinking scripturally. And it's thinking biblically. They're seeing any opposition that they face for their faith. They're seeing it in light of Jesus Christ. They understand that because the world hates Jesus Christ. Hates Jesus Christ. And because Christians are so united in Jesus Christ, they can understand that, guess what? Christians are going to be hated by the world. Just as Jesus said they would be. And so here's, here's the question that I want us to consider just now. Do you think we will be able to do this? Do you think we are going to be able to think scripturally? To think biblically when we face opposition for our faith? Can we do that just now in the opposition that, that you face? Will we be able to do it in the future? Think about it biblically. Think about the context, why it's happening. See, we, we talked about this last week. And we, we talked about the fact that if we are thinking scripturally about persecution and opposition, guess what? We will not be surprised when Christians are persecuted. And we, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be rocked when our government passes laws that tries to sideline biblical Christianity, should we? Should we? That shouldn't rock our faith. That shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't be surprised or shaken if political parties that are, you know, that disagree on everything else under the sun, we should be surprised if they gather together and they unite in their opposition to Christ. I mean, that should not come on. That shouldn't surprise us. That shouldn't rock our faith. These things have happened in the past. These things are going to happen again. Instead of being panicky about these things, we've got to do what this church does here. We see these things happen. We fix ourselves to the sovereignty of God. We acknowledge what this church acknowledges in their prayer. The guess of God foreordained all of the persecution of his church. He foreordained all of it. Why? For our good. For the honour of his most holy name. When opposition comes, we view it through scripture. 
and what the Bible tells us about the promises and the purposes of God. The predicament, the church's predicament. So the church's people, the church's predicament. Here we go with that third one. The church's petition. Now, my wife and I, we, uh, we laugh often about how incredibly different we are. My wife and I, incredibly different. You see, I, I don't think that uh, growing up that I had a spiritual thought in my body uh, until I was well in my 20s, okay? But my wife, I sometimes think that she was born with this kind of precise moral and uh, spiritual compass. You know, she was amazing. And I suppose that scene in how we, the pair of us responded to Christmas uh, when we were about sort of 13, 14 years old, okay? Now, I can't really remember what I said when my mum asked me what I wanted for Christmas when I was 14 years old. I can't remember, but I'm, I know that it would be something materialistic. I know it would be, give me more toys or give me more money. What do you think my wife asked for when, uh, when her mother went to her and said, what do you want? She's 14 years old. What do you want for Christmas? What do you think she said? She asked for a new Bible. Isn't that brilliant? That's fantastic, isn't it? A new Bible at 14 years old. But I'm sure for a mum, it would have been a surprising, if commendable, request. Surprising, if commendable, request. Now, think about it. That's what we've got here, isn't it? Peter and John, they've come back. The church is praying. The church is able, in prayer, to set the context of this persecution. But then it gets to the petition. Then it gets to the plea. Then it gets to what they are actually asking God for. Now, if it's us in that situation earlier on, where, where Bob and Peter have, have been persecuted, and we're facing opposition for a faith, what do you think, as a congregation, we would pray? We pray, Lord, make the opposition stop. Wouldn't we? We pray, Lord, will you please keep us safe during this persecution? Would you keep us from harm? Would you keep us from being arrested? That's what we pray, but that is not what the New Testament church prayed. Do you see it? It's a surprising, a commendable request. Verse 29. On top of asking for miracles to be done to authenticate their message, they ask God for boldness. Boldness in their continued gospel proclamation. They show no intention of listening to the authorities and their command to stop preaching. They're going to ignore that completely. They've heard from Paul that, that it's his boldness that had an effect on the Sanhedrin. So they don't, they don't care. It's not about protection. It's not about protecting the church. It's not about safety here. It's about courage. Lord, please show us courage. Give us courage. Give us bravery. Now, here's the thing. Hear this. There is a crucial ingredient that we are missing out in our attempts to witness for Jesus Christ. It is a missing ingredient that has assisted the decline of the church in this country over the last 40, 50 years. What's the missing ingredient? 
It is the boldness of believers. It's like we don't grasp the fact that boldness for Christ is this significant theme throughout the New Testament. We see it all the way through Acts. We see it in books like Ephesians. Remember when Paul goes to Damascus to preach the gospel? Do you remember what we're told? Paul spoke boldly. Paul goes to Pisidian Antioch. What does scripture tell us? Paul spoke boldly. Paul goes to Iconium. What does the Bible tell us? It tells us that Paul spoke boldly. In all of these places, all of these times, boldness is at the core of effective evangelism. You see, the problem is that we are a wee bit too timid. Maybe a wee bit too shy for Jesus Christ. You know, we, we wait for conversations to come to us. And we tiptoe around the subject of the gospel, don't we? Tiptoe around it. Now, don't get me wrong. Boldness for Christ is not about rudeness. And it's not about aggression. And it's not about arrogance in any way. Surely, especially when faced with opposition, the church of Jesus Christ should show some conviction for Jesus Christ. And as for the church here in Acts, when faced with the first shoots of opposition, we pray, people. We don't pray for protection so much as we pray for boldness. Boldness to declare the word of God. The church's people... The church's predicament, the church's petition, they ask for boldness. We just end just with a word in the fourth one. And that is the church's empowerment. Just a word. Now I love the idea of on your phone having a ringtone for individual people. I think that's great. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know that the idea that your best friend phones and that tune, Happy, is played by your phone, okay? Or your mother-in-law phones and your phone plays the march of the Imperial Stormtroopers from, from Star Wars. Something like that. You know, something that we immediately associate with someone, okay? Something that we hear it, we think about it, we immediately associate it with someone. And that's what we've got here. Because this church, it prays for boldness, you know. They're gathered together. I'm sure they are scared. And they're praying for boldness. And do you see what happened to the church? Do you see what happened? The church building began to move. The church building, the place that they were meeting in, begins to shake. You know, it begins to tremble. Now, what on earth is that about? Why is the Why is the building moving? We see that the word shake there is the same word that is used of an earthquake. An earthquake. Earthquake. Something all the way through scripture is associated with the presence of God. Yes? What happened when Jesus was crucified? Very ground moved. 
What happened when Jesus rose from the dead? The very ground moved. What does Psalm 114 tell us? It tells us, tremble you earth and the presence of the Lord. And here again, Acts chapter 4, the church is scared, the church is praying. And what happens? The ground moves, the building moves. You see what we've been told? We've been told that in persecution, that God was present He was present amongst his church. And not just that, he filled them with the Holy Spirit. They were able, enabled to speak boldly. God was present and he was answering their prayers. Now, we close with this. You see, we seem to be, for some reason, so down and so negative about the church in this country. We seem, for some reason, to have this really negative idea about the future of God's church. That, that because, perhaps, we, we associate opposition with decline, that we think that if there is any opposition to the church, that it will inevitably lead to the dying out of God's church. Now, this morning, please see and understand that that's nonsense. That it does not need to be like that in any way. You see, what happens in Acts chapter 4? The church experiences opposition. But God was with them in that opposition. God was with them. He equipped them. And do you see what happens? As the persecution increases throughout the book, what happens? So do the amount of people that come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. So friends, let's learn from that this morning. Let's stop being so negative. Let's praise God that he is with his people in any opposition that they face for their Savior. And let's thank him that he can enable us to speak his word and to do so with great boldness. Let's pray.